Hello, my name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. You can find me at live2110.com and you can find this video podcast on the corresponding blog post on my website or on my YouTube channel, Wendy Myers. Today we're talking to Johnny Bowden, a PhD. He was such an interesting interview and he has so much energy and enthusiasm. I loved interviewing him. He's really an interesting character and he has a new book out called Smart Fat and we're going to be talking today on the podcast about fat and how a lot of things you know about fat may not be quite right. You know, we're going to, you know, Definitely go over all those low-fat foods and why they're not good for you, why eating a low-fat diet's not healthy for you, why you need to eat fat to, in fact, lose weight. So very, very interesting podcast. We're going to be talking about what exactly Smart Fat is, his Smart Fat program, and he's also hosting a Truth About Fat Loss Summit, and you can get the link to that in the, the blog post below. Um, very interesting uh summit with 38 experts on fat. It's going to be really, really interesting with like the top health celebrities, top authorities on fat and busting all those myths about fat. (laughs) I only said fat about a thousand times. But first we have to do the disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and it's not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature So please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in anything that we suggest today on the show. Our guest, Johnny Bowden, PhD CNS, also known as the Nutrition Mythbuster, is a nationally known expert on weight loss, nutrition, and health. He is a board-certified nutritionist with a master's degree in psychology and the author of 14 books on health, healing, food, and longevity, including three bestsellers, the 150th Healthiest Foods on Earth, which I've bought before a long, long time ago, Living Low Carb, and The Great Cholesterol Myth, co-authored by Stephen Sinatra, well-known cardiologist. He also has earned six national certifications in personal training and exercise. He's board certified by the American College of Nutrition, a member of the prestigious American Society for Nutrition, and a much-in-demand speaker at conferences and events across the country. Can you tell the listeners a, a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Well, I, I came to this field. It's a second career for me. I, I was a professional pianist and, and conductor and musician, uh, and I was as out of shape and unhealthy as you might imagine somebody who came up in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll era of Woodstock would be. Uh, you know, I thought a healthy breakfast was coffee and an aspirin and around 11 o'clock in the morning. So I was pretty much of a, a hot mess in terms of my health. And um, with not much of an interest in health or nutrition or any of this stuff. I was a smoker. I addicted to everybody knows this already. It's pretty common. I've been addicted to every drug in the PDR physician's desk reference. I mean, you know, if it, if it has, if it's something bad for you, I've probably done it. And that has served me very well in my work, um, which we'll get to in a second. So, Late 80s, I'm traveling around the country conducting shows, doing off-Broadway and Broadway touring companies, and you get really bored. And, you know, the actors, it's their job to stay in shape. So these guys, all men and women, they know what to do in the gym. They know what to do with weights. And one day, out of total boredom, I just said to one of the actors, Mike, teach me how to lift these weights things. I think, well, maybe I'll try to lose some of this belly. And I, if you look back at pictures of me, then I looked like – 
probably 20 years older than I look now. And um, so I began kind of lifting weights. And I, like many people who came to a career in health and fitness as a second calling, uh, got really bitten by the bug and became something of a zealot. And I just started to see the changes that went on in my own body, sort of see the weight come off, my energy improve. And I was not, Wendy, one of these people who like had an epiphany and changed their life. I was the guy that would go to the gym, do a couple of sets of bench press and go out and smoke a cigarette in between sets. So it was a long process. <laughs> Process to change all these different things, give up drugs, cigarettes, alcohol, you know. And uh, as I began to do this and began to see in, as a, an experiment on myself what was possible by changing one's diet and lifestyle choices gradually, very gradually, I, I point out this was a couple year process, um, I really just became a zealot. And being a kind of um, middle class Jewish New Yorker, academically oriented, overachieving, kind, the first thing I thought of is, I wonder if I can get a degree in this stuff because, you know, you immediately want to like find some kind of credential that makes what you're learning authentic or respected. And, um, so I was kind of a, a, a an education junkie anyway. I had a master's degree in psychology, a bachelor's in music. And so I started collecting certifications as a personal trainer. So I went out and got one. I said, this is phenomenal. I love this stuff. I think I want another one. And I ultimately collected six of them. And this is still stuff that I'm kind of doing as a hobby. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, getting certified in personal training and aerobics, that would look really good on a Broadway playbill. You know, that's really sexy. But in addition <laughs> to being a conductor, he's also a well-known, you know. Um, and so I, I kind of did it for those reasons. And I was still able to, to kind of uh, balance my music career with my newfound interest in nutrition and fitness. And as it turned out, it was 1990. And there was this new gym that was opening in New York City. Nobody ever heard of it. It looked really sexy and classy and had beautiful signs. It was called Equinox. And I walk into this tiny little office on, on Amsterdam Avenue in New York City where they're, you know, putting it together and hiring. And it says hiring trainers. And I walk in with not one day of experience in my life but six certifications. I go, I'm a personal trainer. I'd like to work here. And for whatever reason, God only knows, they hired me. And I started at Equinox, very first club they ever opened. It was a small family business at the time. As you, everybody listening to this probably knows, it's you know one of the biggest and most prestigious chains in America. The small family sold out for about $250 million in the late 90s. But I was a floor trainer at Equinox. I rose to become the dean of the Equinox Fitness Training Institute, which is kind of the model for how we train trainers in America these days in almost every gym. And uh, I just love this stuff and slowly kind of realized I'm a lot better at this than I am. I, I was successful as a musician. I made my living. I wasn't aspiring. But, you know, there were a lot of people a lot better at, at that than me. And I was pretty good at this. And because I was a little older when I started and because I had a background in writing, I had been a writer all my life and an educator – uh, I, I kind of rose in, in the ranks pretty quickly and Equinox started using me as a communicator, as a spokesperson. I started writing. One of my clients was the editor-in-chief of Fitness Magazine and she brought me on as a contributing editor. I started writing for iVillage. I got my first book deal in 2000 and wrote um, a book that nobody ever read except my girlfriend and my <laughs> mother because it came out the day after 9-11. So, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it was just one of those things. But I, I kind of changed careers and became... Uh, 
you know, a personal trainer. And everything I knew about nutrition, Wendy, I learned from the god-awful American Dietetic Association, which was pretty much responsible for teaching uh, nutrition to personal trainers. And they gave us the same old low-fat, high-carb, uh, high you know, crapola message that we've been given for the last 40 years. And we, I and, and everyone else I knew swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And I was one of those guys, just to tell you where, you know, I kind of came from, um, who would order an egg white omelet. And if there was even a little bit of yolk, I'd send it back because I just knew if I ate that yolk, I was going to get heart disease because <laughs> it was going to raise my cholesterol. I was, you know, da, da, da. so I was a true believer. Um, early 90s, Equinox hosts a lecture from an unknown biochemist who had just published a book and he decided to come and do a kind of speaking tour to the people, professionals in the health field. And we were hosting this, uh, this, uh, talk from a man named Dr. Barry Sears. Now, Barry Sears is the author of the, the created the zone empire is the book was called the zone. It was his first of a series of, of beautiful series of books, you know, the zone diet, uh, the, in, there's a hundred of them, you know, the zone, this anti-aging zone, the, this zone, uh, the Omega zone. And Barry spoke and he had a relatively revolutionary concept. He said, this is not all about calories. This is not all about exercise. Food is information. Food has a hormonal effect. We need to look at not just calories, but the effect those calories have on our hormones, which really are what run the show when it comes to weight loss, fat burning, all the things that you guys all care about, it's not being driven by calories. It's certainly not being driven by a high-carb, low-fat diet. It is, in fact, being driven by hormones, and we need to adjust our diet in order to have a beneficial hormonal environment where fat loss is actually possible. Well, this flew in the face of everything we had heard, everything. And I remember going up to him afterwards and saying, Dr. Sears, I, I said, my God, if, if what you're saying is true, then everybody else is wrong. And I don't know if you know Barry Sears, but he uh, he's not lacking in confidence. And he uh, looked at me smilingly and benevolently, and he said, that's exactly right. Everybody else is wrong. And that started a kind of lifelong uh, 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 friendship that I still have with Barry to this day. I just interviewed him recently for my summit, and he wrote the introduction to my first book. And that was the beginning of my kind of opening of my eyes and my emperor's new clothes moment when I realized what we had been taught by the American Dietetic Association was nonsense. And I began investigating this on my own. Now, that led me to actually realize I didn't know as much about nutrition as I thought. And I went back to school. First, I became a CN, a certified nutritionist. Ultimately, I went back and got a PhD in nutrition and got certified by the um, American College of Nutrition. And I have I stopped teaching bench presses and started doing nutrition. And the first book led to another. And now here we are, 15 books later, and I have devoted probably most of my career to just busting the myths that we've been told by all of the establishment, what we call the diet dictocrats who have all the answers except they're all wrong. Yeah. So the typical, you know, thing you hear in the media is to eat less fat. All the foods in the grocery store say less fat, 2% fat, et cetera, et cetera. Why do we actually need to eat more fat? Well, that's the subject of my follow-up book to the great cholesterol myth, which is called smart fat. Um, when we took fat out of our diets in the, in the mid-80s, when that became kind of accepted policy, and we talk about this, by the way, in The Great Cholesterol Myths, because fat and cholesterol are the Bonnie and Clyde of dietary villains. As far as most of America is concerned, it's impossible to talk about one without the other. I mean, you know, we're 
warned off of fat because it supposedly raises cholesterol. It's a whole other subject. And cholesterol supposedly causes heart disease. So one of the reasons that we're so afraid of fat is the connection to cholesterol and heart disease. If that connection is not so, and that's exactly the subject of the great cholesterol myth, it is not so, then the dietary guidelines of the past 40 years crumble like a house of cards. So we've been warned of fat, A, because of its supposed relationship to cholesterol and cholesterol supposed relationship to heart disease, number one. And also because of this kind of notion that we humans are kind of pre-wired to think that like you eat the heart of a lion, you get brave like a lion. You eat the, you know, and you eat fat. Well, what happens? You get fat. So we've got these kind of twin myths that eating fat makes you fat. Absolutely untrue. And eating fat will give you heart disease also absolutely untrue. And those are the two main reasons that we got started on this crazy low-fat thing in the first place. Um, then, you know, what happens is these things take on a life of its own. Now, you've got billions of dollars put into low-fat foods, into lowering cholesterol, into statin, and it becomes a whole big ocean liner that's very difficult to turn around. But that's the kind of progress that we're making, and it's certainly not just me. It's all the people who have called BS on cholesterol and fat and saturated fat and all the demons in the diet, and we're trying, the, the mission is to try to refocus our health capital on the things that really cause obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, and it ain't fat. Yeah, and it's about money. Yeah, the, all the, the big food companies, big agra, and big pharma, they're all in collusion to make us think cholesterol is bad. We've got to do everything we can do to lower it, take drugs. Uh, fat is bad. Eat all these processed foods with reduced fat. And it's just, it's all about money. Yeah. Money. Well, I, I, I try to not sound like a conspiracy theorist. I don't necessarily think all these are bad people, that every doctor who puts you on a statin drug or to, is necessarily a bad guy. They are marketed to very effectively by the pharmaceutical companies. Um, they are harassed. They don't have a lot of time to spend with patients. They get six or seven minutes. Most of their time is is spent, you know, doing paperwork. They, they don't have the easiest job either. And they've got these perky little, you know, farm reps who come to their office with samples and graphs and statistics. And it becomes pretty pretty hard to resist these uh, this information as it's passed on. So I don't think, you know, that all the doctors and scientists got together like, you know, the Dick Cheney Energy Committee in secret. And they said, let's screw up the American public. Let's all tell them to stay away from fat and let's all put them on cholesterol. We'll do I don't think it happens like that. What I think happens is this information, maybe even with the best of intentions, gets into the zeitgeist. It becomes kind of conventional wisdom. People start to adapt it. All of a sudden it becomes, you know, reified in, in, in recommendations from the American Diabetes Association, the American Heart Association. And it becomes kind of, you know, evidence-based medicine and everybody's afraid to deviate from it. And I don't necessarily think it's because of bad faith uh, or a conspiracy. It's kind of the way ideas get a hold. And like I said on Dr. Oz, he asked me, well, why do you think, you know, such smart people still believe this stuff? And I said, Dr. Oz, if you went back, you know, a couple thousand years, you would have the smartest scientists and the smartest people on earth all convinced that the earth is flat. I don't know how these ideas stay around and what changes them, but we've, you know, our, our human history is filled with this stuff. You know, the sun actually rotates around the earth. Revolutionary. When we found out that wasn't true. Uh, you know, high carb diets are healthy. Um, well, this is the revolution in that we're finding out cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease. Fat doesn't make you fat. And the dietary direction that we have been pointed for the past 40 years is dietary death. And you're seeing the results of it. Don't take my word for it. As I say, we live in California. I just say, go to Disneyland and look around. People are, this is not the template 
that people were designed to be in. This is not, you know, being 100 pounds overweight, walking around with a Diet Coke in one hand and some horrible, you know, junk food hot dog in the other. This is not the energy level we were meant to have. This is not our birthright. We have been misled and it is time to set the record straight about fat, cholesterol and diet. Yeah. And so you're referring to people who are overweight. I mean, can eating more fat help you to, in fact, lose weight? Yeah. The sad part about the whole overweight mythology is that it's very victimizing. And and people who are overweight have been are really one of the last victims in which, you know, it's still OK for comedians to make fat jokes. It's still OK for people to, you know, who would never dream of doing a racial epithet or a ethnic epithet will will make jokes about fat people as if, well, they're slovenly, they're greedy, they're, they're, you know, they don't have any self-control. When in fact, we now know that what makes people fat is a complex interaction of hormones and metabolism and the microbiome and, and um, hormone disruptors in the environment and in the food supply. And there are so many other factors. And this notion that people are just not following the advice and what's the matter with them and they're so greedy and they can't control themselves is, is not only disempowering, but it's just it, it is so sad and we will look back on it 50 years from now when we've sorted all this out and go oh my god what were they thinking yeah yeah and so you know your book is called smart fat what exactly do you mean by smart fat well, these are fats that, that in good human trials have been shown to have distinctive health benefits the most obvious would be fish oil olive oil um, you know, these these are fats that we know are associated with good health outcomes in many, many studies, you know, from just ranging back over, over the years. Um, so smart fats are the ones we want you to specifically include in your diet. But there's another category called neutral fats, which actually do no harm. They may not yet be shown to have a specific health benefit. But they certainly don't harm you. And these are some of the fats that we've demonized. The saturated fat that comes from grass-fed beef, for example, which is very, very different than the fat that comes from factory-farmed beef. That's a perfectly neutral, wonderful fat. I believe within a short time we will have enough evidence to say that's actually a smart fat and does a lot of good things. There are people in the space right now like David Perlmutter who will tell you that right now. But we're willing to say, okay – Let's at least admit that this stuff doesn't harm you in one drop. If you not want to say that it's, it's a smart fat that you should make an effort to get more of in your diet, okay, I'm okay with that. But for God's sake, let's not demonize it. So there's the smart fats are the ones we know are beneficial. I personally, um, I, I don't know that my co-author would necessarily agree with this. He was a little more conservative than I am. But I would include Malaysian palm oil as a smart fat. That's that red delicious oil that is, is um, so neglected because it's a saturated fat, but actually Actually, the reason it's red is because it contains all these carotenoids and all these tocotrienols, which are really great compounds, you know. Um, the, the bad fats, interestingly enough, and, and this is the, the notion that was so hard to really attack in smart fat and to get people to understand is there is good fat and bad fat. It just doesn't divide along the metric that we all think it does. We all think bad fat, if you ask the average person, even educated person who reads about nutrition, you said, what's bad fat? They're going to say, well, saturated fat, animal products, trans fats. Well, they're right about the trans fats, but they're wrong about the animal products and saturated fat. And if you ask them what are good fats, they're going to say vegetable oil. Well, they're wrong about that too. And here's why. What makes a fat good or bad is whether or not it's toxic. It's pure and simple. That's the only metric that matters. Is the fat toxic? Now, here's what we mean by that. Every mammal on the planet, you, me, the monkeys, the dogs, the cats, anything, any mammal stores toxins in their fat. 
If you take cows and you raise them in this horrific environment known as a feedlot farm, what they call CAPOs, confined animal feeding operations, a vast multi-acre areas in which cows are uh, uh, raised in tiny little stalls. They're force-fed number one grain. Grain is not their natural diet. It makes their stomachs acid. Now we need to give them more antibiotics. In addition to the antibiotics that fatten them up, they need antibiotics just not to get sick because of the conditions they live in and the food they're forced to eat. All of the pesticides of that crappy grain get stored in their fat. The antibiotics get stored in their fat. The steroids that they're given to grow faster and get fatter stored in their fat. The bovine growth hormone stored in their fat. Well, that fat is a toxic waste dump, but not because it's saturated and not because it comes from an animal. Give you an example. Here in California, where you and I live, we had an E. coli scare a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, it was traced to a crop of spinach. At one point, you couldn't go into a Subway sandwich stop and get spinach. It had all been recalled. Not one health professional went on the air and said, guys, Spinach is bad for you. Everybody intuitively understood that a crop had been contaminated. Spinach is a great vegetable. Are you kidding me? But what happened is this particular crop got contaminated and it wound up in all the supermarkets and they had to recall it. Well, that's the way to think of animal fat. It's not the animals. You get grass-fed meat that has raised on pasture and never been fed an antibiotic or a steroid or a hormone or the pesticides and grain that they don't eat. And there's no reason to avoid that fat at all. When I buy grass-fed meat at the farmer's market and they said, you want the lean kind? No, bring on the fat. Yeah. It makes it taste better and there's nothing in it that's bad. Untrue with factory farmed meat. If factory farmed meat was the only meat available to me, I'd become a vegetarian and I am very far from a vegetarian. So we need to understand that toxicity is what makes fat fat uh, bad, not whether it comes from an animal or a vegetable. Now, the other part of the myth of bad fat is that vegetable oils are good for us. Here's the problem. We make, we humans make both inflammatory and anti-inflammatory compounds in our body. Both are necessary. And people always say to me, well, why, are anti why do we need inflammatory compounds? Well, think about the last time you got a splinter or you got an infection or you got a fever. What happens is inflammation is part of the body's healing response. We need to be able to send these inflammatory cytokines to the area in which there's been a puncture wound or an injury to prevent a microbe from getting a hold from an infection from getting started. So we need the ability to make inflammatory compounds. We also need, obviously, the ability to make anti-inflammatory compounds, and we make these compounds, both inflammatory and anti-inflammatory, out of fats. The omega-6 fats, which are found in vegetable oil, all the stuff we've been told to eat, corn oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, canola oil, all of this stuff is high omega-6, pro-inflammatory. Omega-3s are pro-anti-inflammatory. So the omega-3s are anti-inflammatory, the omega-6s are inflammatory. We need a balance of about 1 to 1. We are currently consuming between 16 to 1 and 25 to 1 in favor of these stupid vegetable oils that are processed within an inch of their lives, have nothing of value left in them, and are very pro-inflammatory. And then we wonder why inflammation is at the heart of every major disease and why we're seeing such an epidemic of it. It's partly because we're following this idiotic advice to consume more vegetable oil and less saturated fat. We, it's not that vegetable 
vegetable oil is always bad. It's that the amount that we're consuming is so massive compared to the anti-inflammatory omega-3s that we're completely out of whack and we need an oil change. We need to go back to some good, healthy, neutral, saturated fats, some good saturated fats like coconut oil, which is a smart fat, Malaysian palm oil, uh, grass-fed butter, all of these great fats that we can use to balance all of this inflammatory omega-6 that, we, that has taken over our diet. Yeah, and I read that the the ratio of omega six to omega three should be about one to one or one to one two, two, and now it's one to twenty five. That's what I'm saying. That's exactly. It, it's right. it's so out of whack with our natural diet. That's exactly that's why we're all sick. So right. let's talk about heart disease, and you know the the status quo thinking is that saturated fats lead to heart disease. How do you dispel that myth in your book, Smart Fat? Well, I didn't dispel it. Actually, the, the research dispelled it. In the last five years, there have been at least two. I think there's really, at this point, probably three or four. But there are two that I know of and can quote right away. Two major meta-analyses that actually looked at exactly this question. Now, let me explain how I, 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 I think the best way to explain this is I have some great visuals that I use when I'm lecturing about this. But I'll try to uh, uh, put it in verbal terms. Um, it's very hard to study people for 30 years, to study their diet, to do a randomized control trial and see how many people die at the end of 30 years. And when you're looking at heart disease, that's what you really care about. Cholesterol is just a marker. And people believe that it's a great marker for heart disease. We talk in the book about why it's a terrible marker for heart disease. Half the people admitted to hospitals for cardiovascular disease of any kind have perfectly normal cholesterol. So it's a lousy marker, but we think it's a great marker. So cholesterol has become kind of a stand-in for the effect of saturated fat. If we see that saturated fat raises cholesterol, we assume in a six-month study, a two-year study, we assume, oh, those people are at much greater risk for heart disease because it's kind of a stand-in. It's an easier study to do. Um, one of the examples I use in this is, you know, we live, I live in L.A., heart of the, uh, the movie industry. If you're hiring Brad Pitt for a movie and you got to light him, you use a stand-in. You're not going to use a $20 million actor to stand there while they do hair and makeup. You use somebody who has the same coloring, the same height, and they light that guy. That's the stand-in. Well, cholesterol has been a stand-in for heart disease. So what these researchers did, they said, okay, we know that under certain circumstances, saturated fat will raise cholesterol. Now, there's a whole other discussion about whether that matters or not, but let's just say, let's just go with it for the moment, that it raises total cholesterol. These researchers said, what happens if we take out the middleman? What happens if we, we don't use a stand and we look at the actual event we care about, which is, is this guy going to be around in 30 years to play with his grandkids? We don't care. what. Do you really care what your blood level of cholesterol is? Nobody knows. It has no symptoms. What we care about is what we think it tells us about our future. So they said, let's see what the real future is. Forget the marker. Forget the stand-in. And they looked at they look uh, meta-analysis for people who don't know is not a study itself. It's a study of studies. They look at all the research. They throw out anything that does not meet absolutely pristine research standards. If there's any question about it, they don't include it. They take the studies that absolutely are impeccably done. They pool all the data. And they wind up with something like in one of these things, 350,000 patients. In the other one, it was over 500,000 patients. And they look and they say, okay, these people ate a high saturated fat diet. Let's look at, forget the cholesterol. Let's look at the end result. Did that saturated fat in any manner, shape or form have an effect on heart disease? 
In both meta-analyses done independently in different journals, the answer was a resounding no. It has no effect on dying, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, or anything else. So have that stake. Yeah. Well, no. Now, wait a second. That's the, that's the problem with sound bites and Twitter. <laughs> have that stake if it is grass-fed because you don't want the toxins that come with the fat when it's not grass-fed. And bring down the contribution to your diet of all of these processed carbs. Often when we find something that's really good, like olive oil, Americans will often think, oh, I'll, oh that's good. I'll, I'll add it to my cornflakes. I mean, no. The idea is to eat that instead of some of the stuff that's making you fat, sick, tired, depressed, and old. That's the, the, the juggling act there. So it's not just eat the steak, go into McDonald's, order a steak. No, we don't want you to eat that either because that'll make you unhealthy for a dozen other reasons, all of which we just talked about when we talked about toxins. But yes, there is nothing to fear from a grass-fed steak at all. So you've established saturated fat does not cause heart disease. What actually is causing heart disease? We identified, in smart fat, we identified four factors. And believe me, we know there's many others. There, there, are, um, there are theories that viruses have a big effect on heart disease. And, and there are many different things, genetic factors, the susceptibility. But we identified four major factors we can actually do something about. And interestingly enough, a, a, a few years ago, I wrote another book called uh, The Most Effective Ways to Live Longer. And I read copious research about people who lived well into their you know, 90s in good health, not in assisted living homes or on oxygen tanks, but people were actually doing things. And we looked at what, what are the things that age people. And interestingly enough, the four things that age people are the same four things that promote heart disease. And they are inflammation, oxidative damage, stress in your life, and sugar in your diet. The same damn four things that make you old also give you heart disease. And we, and this insane concentration on lowering cholesterol, which makes not a whit of difference in terms of protecting people from dying, has been the sole focus of our efforts to reduce heart disease. And what we should be focusing on are the things that we can act, that actually make a difference, like inflammation, oxidative damage, lowering stress in our lives, lowering sugar in our diet. Um, those are the things we can actually do something about. Triglycerides, easy to lower, big risk factor. Inflammatory measures like homocysteine, relatively easy to bring down. Those are the things we should be looking at. For God's sake, let's get off this crazy cholesterol kick. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. So you have a program you talk about in your book, the 1055 program. Can you explain what that is exactly? It's really easy. It's this, the Smart Fat program basically says, here's what you need to do. You need to get five good servings of Smart Fat a day. You need to get five good servings of what we call clean protein, which is everything we talked about, as long as it's not, you know, factory farmed or farmed salmon, whether it has PCBs, just, you know, clean sources of protein, five of those a day and 10 servings of fiber. Now, here's the important thing about fiber. Um, I've been a, an advocate for low-carb diets probably since 2004 when I wrote Living Low Carb. At one point, I was a consultant for Atkins. Um, so I'm a big believer in higher-fat diets. 
there is one bugaboo, one Achilles heel, Achilles Achilles heel in uh, in, in those diets, and they tend to have too little fiber, and that's because protein doesn't have any fiber, and fat doesn't have any fiber. When people take out all the carbs, they misunderstand and think they shouldn't eat vegetables or beans or nuts or any of these things. They wind up with a very low fiber diet. Fiber is associated in every single epidemiological study ever done. Higher fiber diets associated with better blood sugar control, uh, less rates of diabetes less obesity, uh, general well-being, I mean, just a better digestive health, everything goes with high-fiber diets. So we uh, created a high-fat diet that also is high-fiber, and the 10 in the 10.55 is 10 servings of fiber a day. Yeah, I love it. That's been my biggest beef with the the low carb diets is that they, you know, account, you know, artichokes have 17 grams of carbs. Oh my God. So no, that's the word. That we don't think that we, we do not do that. In, yeah. in, we, we don't, we're not big fans of grains. I'm, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I have, I, I think we can live very healthy, uh, and a nutritious life without touching grains. I'm not saying that nobody should eat grains, but I'm saying we eat too many of them and that they're not really necessary in the diet. That said, we don't forbid things like that in the smart fat program, but we really urge people to stay away from the wheat and the, and the grains and to, to the extent that you want things like that to stick with the occasional serving of sweet potato quinoa, which isn't really a grain, but kind of functions like a grain, eats like a grain, tastes like a grain, cooks like a grain, but it's really a seed, but who cares? Um, And things like that, sweet potato and quinoa and and the occasional serving of of brown rice in small quantities. We we are big proselytizers for beans and legumes, which are kind of a mixed food that's carbs and protein together, but loads of fiber. Um, One of the big myths and the things that makes me apoplectic about American Dietetic Association information is they keep telling us and they have brainwashed us into thinking that you need breads and cereals because they're great fiber sources. Folks, read the label and tell me, please write to me, jb at johnnybowden.com, if you find one box of cereal that has more than three grams of fiber per serving, and you'd have to look hard to find that. Most of them have one to two. Most breads have one to two grams with all the sugar and wheat that you have to go and, and, and consume in order to get that one or two grams. Those are not good sources of fiber. An avocado has eight grams, eight to 11 grams of fiber. A, uh, a serving of beans is 11 to 17 grams of fiber. Those are the fiber heavyweights, not this breads and pasta and cereal stuff. That's just propaganda that's been sold to you by the American Dietetic Association. Run the other way when you hear that. Yeah. Well, that's what I really like about your book is that you're, you're uh, you know, a proponent of vegetables and beans and things like that. I think Absolutely. that's something that when I've done low-carb diets or attempted them, you know, in the early days when I was experimenting, that just did not make, intuitively make sense to me. And yeah. I rejected the diets because of that. Um, it makes so much more sense. So thank you and, for clarifying and, that. Sure. And, and let me be clear also that I, I have said for my entire 25-year career, I think from the very first day I had a public platform, I've said nothing, no diet, no program fits everybody. There is no such thing as the perfect diet. There is only the perfect fit between eating plan or eating pattern and person. Some people do okay with dairy. Some people can eat grains. Not a lot. And there's some consequences, but for some, really not that many. Um, and, and the same thing with beans. The paleo people are very anti-beans because of the lectins, but we think only about 10% of people are affected by lectins. So beans are a great source of antioxidants and fiber, and you've always got to kind of figure out what works for you. But I'll tell you what doesn't work for anybody, and that's a high-sugar diet. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. A lot of people are allergic to sugar. I have sensitivity to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're very fittingly doing a summit called the Truth About Fat Summit. So what can people expect when they, you know, join your summit? The and, Truth and, About Fat Loss. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, this was a, a labor of love for me. I worked on it for a year. I have interviewed um, at this point 38, maybe 39, world, most of them world-class experts. David Perlmutter, the author of Grain Brain, William Davis, the author of Wheat Belly, Barry Sears, the author of The Zone, Anne Louise Gittleman, the author of The Fat Flush Plan, um, Chris Kresser, the, the, the paleo guy, um, I, I can't even remember, um, Pedram Shojai, who, who just wrote The Urban Monk, a magnificent book, Donna Gates with The Body Ecology Guy, and so many more people who talk about the psychology of eating, like Mark David at the Institute of the Psychology of Eating. Um, and, and the subjects that came up, uh, you know, I know a lot about this stuff, but I learned so much from these experts. It was just overwhelming. The role of the microbiome and how it really affects not only digestion, but mental states and depression and, and, and um, the, how the bacteria in the gut can actually predispose you to extract every calorie you eat and store it as fat or burn up calories. You, we all know people who can look at a Ben and Jerry's and they gain five pounds and other people seem to be able to eat anything. Well, some of that is related to the microbiome. We find out stuff about that in the summit. So it has just been a, a wealth of information on everything from juicing to detox. We have one of the great detoxification experts, Dr. Dan Kalish, who talked about, you know, different ways to, uh, to impact toxins and why toxins actually do have an effect on weight and metabolism. So it's just so filled with this great information and I'm so proud of it. And I, um, you know, one, one of the things also about it is that uh, you don't really have to listen to all 39 speakers. I'm a big believer and it's like a library. You know, go to the books that interest you. Sample things. See, this guy really talks to you. This woman really resonates with you. We had, I'm I'm thinking now back to Dr. Tammy, whose whole subject was um, how we don't look enough at testosterone levels in women and what a, what an important factor that can be, not only for weight and, 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 uh, burning body fat, but also, you know, for well-being and libido. Um, Sarah Godfrey talked about hormonal balance in women. Uh, it's, it's it just, it's really just so filled with wonderful information that I, I just, I'm really so proud of it, and I hope everybody comes in. As you know, all summits, they're free online for a whole week. In my case, April 25th to May 2nd, and of course, you can sign up. I'm sure you'll have a link on your site and also at my site, johnnybolden.com. You can sign up. It's free. Just register for it. It's got all kinds of really good things, raffle gifts and purchase gifts and, and registration gifts. And remember, you do not have to purchase it. You can listen to it for free. Yeah, that's what I love about summits. You can get the information that you need. You can. But if you want, you can buy it. And it's just a wealth of information. From I always buy them. I bought Mark Hyman's summit and he had all the same speakers I did. But, you know, you hear the same speakers with a different interviewer. And there's a different focus. There's a different energy between the speaker and the person interviewing them. So I got different information out of the same speakers that marked it. And I wanted to listen to what they said on his summit. And I wanted to, and it was different than what they said on mine. Some overlap, but you know, there's really, when you're talking about people of this quality, they, you can't really get enough of them is how I look at it. You know? Yeah. They're a wealth of information. I know doing this podcast, I just love picking the experts' brains. <laughs> um, so I have a question I like to ask every guest. Sure. sure. What do you you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Wow. The most pressing health issue in the world today. 
I'm going to, you know, you caught me off guard with that. So you're going to get my top of the head <laughs> answer without giving it a lot of thought. I'm going to say energy. And I'll tell you why I'm going to say energy. Virtually every, I mean, trying to pick what the biggest thing is, is it diabetes, is it obesity, is it heart disease, is it Alzheimer's? And, and one of the things I found out, and the people who listen to the summit will find out is how these things all have a similar core. Even Alzheimer's are now calling type three diabetes. These things have very similar roots. So trying to pick which disease is going to explode is probably very hard to do. And then we get into, you know, toxins and GMOs and climate change. I mean, it could be anything. But the one thing that I think is a constant is that when people don't have any energy, they feel crummy. If you can't manage your energy, you're probably not managing your health. So almost anything that's a health issue is going to show up in your personal energy. If you're not sleeping enough, you ain't going to be energetic. If you're not eating right, you're not going to be energetic. If your hormones are out of whack, you're not going to have much energy. So, And one of the things that, that people come to me the most often with, and I answer, you know, I have columns in clean eating. I have an Ask the Doc column. I do lots of, you know, questions and answers on Facebook and stuff. And one, I, I think I probably get this once a day is I'm so tired I'm so fatigued. What can I do to get my energy back? Well, look at a two-year-old. You think they have problems with energy? You can't even keep, if, if you talk to any new parent who's got, you know, an infant around, it's like they can't even keep up with them. They never go to sleep. They are bundles of energy. Well, that's how we came out of the box, folks. So what happened? I always think of it as like a goldfish bowl and it starts out all clear and you see the fish and then, you know, they excrete in there and nobody cleans the water and after a while it gets muddy and everything runs slower. And so, Well, that's what's happening with our energy. So I see energy as a kind of wonderful metric by which we can judge almost all the other health issues that we're talking about here. So I, I think that's probably the crisis of energy is probably uh, where I'd go with that answer. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I mean, every client coming to me is exhausted. That's why I created my Limitless Energy e-guide. That is the crux. When you are tired, that is the first sign something is wrong and that you need to be proactive and yeah. fix it before it gets worse. And, you know, uh, we talked earlier about how I got into this. And I told you I used to be a musician. I used to wake up at 11 and, I, you know, coffee, cigarettes, the whole, you know, aspirin, all of that stuff. So, I've been eating this way or a variation of this way, and I began exercising at age 38. Um, and now I, my next birthday, I'm going to be 70. So comparing myself now to what I was like 35 years ago when I just – I wake up now without an alarm clock. I set the alarm clock for 6.15 just in case, but I never need it because I'm up. I'm on the tennis court at 7.30 every morning. I play between two and three hours a day every single day. Sometimes I play twice a day. I have passion for my partner, Michelle. I mean, we have a passionate relationship. I, I probably, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this to, I'm saying this because everybody tells me this doesn't happen for them. So I want you to know what's possible. Libido, same as when I was 30, if not better. Uh, energy, I, I think nobody ever accused me of being low energy. Yeah. You know, wake up without an alarm. I'm, I'm alive, enthusiastic about the day. And I know that this has to do with living this way and eating this way and, and uh, you know, following these kind of lifestyle changes that can be made. So I know the rewards of this. And I know the difference because I used to be very, very different than this. And I know on the other side, and a lot of people who are listening to this in their 30s or their 40s, and, ah, you know, I'll take a pill of work. I can tell you, I can promise you, that things will be really, really better if you live the way 
you will learn how to live from Wendy's show, from my summit, from all of the wonderful resources that your audience is probably exposed to. Take this advice because it really, really, I'm here to tell you, it really makes a difference. Yeah, and everyone go get Johnny's book, Smart Fat. I mean, he has a wealth of information, education, and experience, and you won't regret it. So, Johnny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Tell the listeners where they can find you in your book. Johnny Bowden, there's no H in Johnny, so it's J-O-N-N-Y-B-O-W-D-E-N.com, at Johnny Bowden on Twitter, Dr. Johnny Bowden on Facebook, and I have an Amazon page. And actually, if you, I'm, I'm very kind of flattered to say that if you just put my first name, J-O-N-N-Y, and the word nutritionist into Google, you'll, you don't even need my last name. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is impressive. <laughs> John, thanks for coming on the show. Everyone, if you want to learn about me and my version of paleo, the modern paleo diet, I have lots of healthy fats in there too. Uh, go to live2110.com and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Wendy Myers 110. Um, I'm on YouTube at Wendy Myers. Um, I'm also on Instagram, uh, Pinterest, etc. Same address, Wendy Myers 110. If you like what you heard on the show, please give the podcast a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast. Thanks, Wendy.